itself unfolds. Many souls bound together with one destiny. The fate of the world rests upon their shoulders. Grand adventure, political intrigue, and many deadly enemies line their path to greatness. This is the story of the dreadful six, Dragon's Bane. Jormundar, a vast continent located in the middle of the Caspian Ocean. Long ago, war ravaged its surface between humankind and dragons. At the head of the dragon's forces was one in particular, Culligan, King of the Sky. Really? That's the best you got? These listeners will be asleep if you continue like that. If you think you can do any better, go ahead. For now. You can thank me later. So this Culligan guy, you know, dragon thing, whatever, he deemed himself king of the dragons and began to wage war on the rest of creation, all because he thought himself and dragons and, you know, all the dragonborn to be just better than everything else. Interesting thing about that, though, is that not every dragon agreed with his philosophy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, many other dragons of varying colors and rank chose to stand against Culligan and his genocidal ideals. However, he proved to be too powerful. Soon there were no other dragons left to stand against him and his forces. However, humanity had raised an army of their own during that time. Led by the Slavon family of blacksmiths and arcane savants, they began to push back against the evils of the self-proclaimed Dragon King. Eventually, the humankind armies proved to be more than Culligan and his forces were prepared for. One by one, militias and rogue dragons fell to their deaths. The dragons and dragonborn had been hunted into extinction. Finally, only Culligan remained. He hid away for a few cycles within the dormant volcano Mount Commodore. However, the Slavon family was able to track his movements and planned an ambush with a sizable force of nearly 10,000 men. The army marched upon the mountain where the Dragon King hid away and began a 13-day siege trying to gain safe entrance into the heart of the stone. At the end, Culligan was defeated, and the only humankind warriors left were three members of the Slavon family. With his dying breath, he cursed the family and their bloodline, and he swore to return. Can we just skip the history lesson and, like, you know, skip ahead to 500 years where it actually gets interesting? As you wish. All right. So eventually everything calmed down after the war, Jormundar split into two major regions. You had Normusfey and Dragalia. Now, Normusfey had flowing grass-filled plains, the large Stormcrest mountain range that leads to the frozen depths, Caspian beaches for a bit of fun in the sun, had the largest forest on the face of Jormundar, and the great capital of Rivendell. That's where the king lives, by the way. Now, Dragalia, on the other hand, was a little bit different. It remained a sun-stricken desert, harsh to any life that dwells near. The people became hard as well. Less and less humans decided to remain in Dragalia, leading to a large increase in hobgoblins, goblins, and ogres. As time went on, 
scribes began to wipe away all historical record of Culligan and the War of Dragons. They did this so that people would not pursue Culligan's promise to return. Normus Fae kept their own, while Dragali began to become more and more problematic. That's where we pick up now. Tensions have risen to the point that there might just be another war. That doesn't sound very fun, but I mean, it's not going to happen, right? Either way, Normus Fae has bargained with Dragalia to ensure that a peace treaty is signed soon. Move over already so we can get serious, will you? Fine, but keep it interesting at least. I'll try my best. Our story begins in Dragalia, just south of the border of Normus Fae. Four people have been captured by Dragalian slavers and thrown into bonds. The sun has been beating down on them for hours now, draining them of what little strength they have left. With bags placed over their heads, they have no idea as to where they are being led. Should be just a few more miles till we hit that stopping point, Inca. Gotta give these horses a rest if we're gonna make it to Ox by the end of the next full cycle. Thank the gods, this heat is unbearable. Hey, hurry up back there! I know you want some water. <laughs> Keep up and you might just get a drop. <laughs> Don't go offering things you can't follow through with, Inca. Us first, then the horses, then the cooking. And then after we pour the rest of it out, we'll feed them some sand. Ah, yes, of course. How could I forget? Well, in the meantime, here's your snack. Inga grabs a stone he had tucked away in the horse's travel pack and throws it at the lead man. The rock hits hard, drawing blood as it begins to run down his face underneath the hood, dripping into the sand ever so often. The slavers drive them on for three more miles. The sand at this point has begun to cause burns and blisters to form on their feet. The chains around their wrists and feet dig in more and more as time and mile after mile is placed upon them. Suddenly, the lead man in chains runs into the rear of a horse. Ah, finally some much-needed rest. It's too hot out here for us, ain't it, Cross? You've read me mind, Inca. Step those new recruits into the ground, then let's get us a tent set up. Sure thing. Alright, come on, you useless waste of air. Gods, the things I have to deal with first. The heat, then the sweat, then comes galling, and now I'm having to go back and forth with a bunch of flea-ridden meat packs. Come on, I said. There. You guys thirsty? Yeah, have a swig. A bit of warm golden juice out of get your fixed right up. <laughs> Oi, don't spoil them. Our job is to make sure they suffer for a bit so they can bro be broken easier when we get to Ox. Oh, come on, Cross. I was just having a bit of fun. Just hurry it up and get back over here. I'll get the tent set up if you'll get us some kindling for a fire. And I swear if you come back with green wood in a desert like you did last cycle, I'll put you in those chains with them. Well, okay, okay, forgive me for not being smart with nature and all this bullcrap. Just go and get it done, will ya? I swear if you wasn't my brother, I'd have fed you to the wolves by now. The slavers can be heard in the near distance, hammering stakes into the ground and moving around some form of tapestry. After some time, everything goes quiet. The sun no longer beats down upon them as the temperature begins to plummet. You know, that's the funny thing about the desert, or at least it's ironic. 
You'll die of heat stroke during the day, but you'll freeze to death in the night. Well, it's not exactly helping our hopeless heroes that they are now soaked in a slaver's piss. The night fully sets in, and unfortunately for our people, that means freezing soon. From where they are located, they can hear the popping and cracking of a campfire nearby. Is anybody left alive? Yes. Indeed. At this point, I believe I'd rather be dead. I had to be careful, make sure they didn't notice. But the chain on my left hand is loose. I can pull my hand out. You guys interested in making a run for it? There's no need to ask. Loose me from my chain so I may kill the scum who have taken us. We have no weapons at our disposal. Exactly how do you plan to do this? Simple. I will use theirs. If you're so sure you can handle it, then count me in. I have a feeling we wouldn't survive in the desert anyway. So I'm going to, if I'm going to die, I'll do it with a weapon in my hand. Ah, my hand is free. Does anyone have anything? Am I using a lockpick? I do. What the hell is this? What are you? Tortle. Just hurry up. I need to find some water. My flesh is drying by the second. Believe it or not, this is working. He takes the time to free himself of his bonds and removes his hood. Even in the dark, the moon and stars pierce his vision from the changing in brightness. As his vision begins to focus, he sees in front of him a Goliath, a turtle, and the human-like man. The Goliath is rather large, even for a Goliath. He is covered in markings, whether it be tattoos or small scars. However, there is one scar in particular that stands out. It runs from one side of his stomach to the other, and just by looking at it, our human friend can tell that the cut was deep. The turtle looks normal for the most part, wrinkled skin that is a pale grayish green color. On his shell, however, is a carved symbol, etched deep as if to keep it from wearing away. His eyeless gaze seemingly follows every movement made. The man is surprisingly tall. With long hair sticking out from under the slaver's hood, he stands much taller than the turtle. His frame is extremely thin and covered in a thin coat of hair. Upon his arms are markings that the lockpicker does not recognize. Once he has taken the time to study his surroundings, he then silently moves from one to the next, freeing them of their bonds as well. As they all adjust their vision, standing in front of them with what seems to be the average human male, Short and kept sandy blonde hair with a well-kept beard. He's not overly muscular, yet it's obvious that he's in good physical condition. A large tattoo of various Olympic runic markings covers nearly the entirety of his right arm. But there is one that stands out. A large anvil is depicted with sparks flying from it as a hammer strikes hot metal. Now the desert, like many dangerous places, has a certain beauty to it. Under the large open sky, they are able to see billions of stars shining like diamonds against the black emptiness. There is enough light from the moon that they can see the rolling sand dunes going on for miles. In the far distance, they can see to the west the outline of what appears to be a mountainside. Looking around, small desert bugs can be seen surfacing from the sand now that the sun has disappeared. Cries from jackals and hyenas can be heard echoing throughout the otherwise silent atmosphere. It's beautiful out here, and once the scenery has been taken into full appreciation, the group 
begin to brainstorm a way out of their sad situation. So, Goliath, what's your plan here? To put it simply, we will surprise, overpower, and then slay them with their own weapons. I will need assistance in this venture. What do you require? I will take point. Torto, I will need you to be on the opposite end of the tent, ready to slash through the cloth with your claws and gain entry. Human, I will need you to come into the tent with me from the front entrance and subdue the second enemy. Hairy man, what are your abilities? I have access to magic within nature, and I can provide you lighting for the attack. Good. I will need you at a small distance behind myself and our human friend. I will yell when we need the light. Wait. Before we do this, if we fail, maybe we should at least know each other's names. I am Marcel, and you, Goliath? I am Kriv. Abrax, Walnut. For me. Alright. I'm ready when you are, Kriv. Vulcan, lend me strength and wisdom at this time. The group begins to take their respective positions throughout the small encampment. Kriv and Marcel approach from the front of the tent, being careful to remain as quiet as possible as to not alert the slavers. Abrax readies himself at the back of the tent with his claws, ready to make an opening if needed. Formir stands back, holding a magical primal flame within his palm. While standing there, they hear the snoring of their captors ringing throughout the darkness. Slowly. Kriv and Marcel enter the tent. With a sudden and terrifying cry, Kriv leaps upon his target and Marcel does the same to his. Formir unleashes his magical power as light floods the inside of the tent. Die, you pig! Come on! What? Cross! Come on, he's going for the sword! Well, bloody well fight, man! Our lives depend on it! Get back here, you! Piss on me and I'll cut it off! Wait, wait, no! No! Inga, the Goliath is too strong. Now, filth known as Inga, it is your turn to die. After a short moment, everything goes quiet. Abrax rips through the back of the tent to get a view as to what is happening. When he enters, he sees Marcel and Kriv standing over the bodies of their captors, victorious, and more importantly, free. Can't say that didn't feel good. Agreed. So what's the plan now? We will not survive the desert at night. It's too far cold, and there's no telling what hunts in this region in dark. I am inclined to agree with Formir here. I believe it may be best if we remained here for the night. At least with the fire at night, it'll keep the beasts at bay. I'm fine with that. Good news, by the way. We now have two horses, some water, food, thanks to these two jackasses. So uh, let's rest up, set off at sunrise, and we'll know which way is north by then. Yes. Normasfair is much more accepting than Dragalia. Marcel, Kriv, Abrax, and Formir lay down next to the fire to keep warm and drip to sleep. The rest of the night passes peacefully over them. The next morning, the sunlight slightly startles Kriv awake. He rises to his feet and walks a few paces away from the rest to relieve himself. With the sun still rising, 
He looked around for a few moments, replaying the fight from last night in his head, looking for any mistakes he may have made, determined to improve his skills where necessary. When he returns, he wakes the rest as a Goliath knows how to. Wake up! We must get moving before it reaches the highest heat of the day. Oh, I couldn't have died last night. Ah, I'm awake. I'm awake. Getting up. Abrax, come on now. How do you shell? We gotta go. Eh. Abrax rocks slightly in his shell when all at once all of his limbs pop out. You know, I never thought a turtle coming out of a shell would sound so much like a cork out of a wine bottle. But sure enough. Oh, it seems I must have rolled over in my sleep last night. Can any of you render assistance? I am cursed with the suffering that the same as regular turtles tend to have. Uh, very interesting. I'll have to keep that in mind if you become troublesome in the future. Get up. Prepare the horses while I take down this tent. We will need the fabric to protect ourselves from the sun. You sure that'll be enough? That fabric isn't very thick. We do not have another choice, Marcel. Yes, we must make do with what we have available to us. The sky now, instead of being a deep blue or black, with stars shining within, has turned into a vibrant mixture of pinks, oranges, and yellows. A few clouds can be spotted on the horizon, making the colors seemingly explode against the sky. Kriv begins dismantling the tent, while Abrax makes sure that the horses are ready for the journey. Formir begins searching around for any wild berries that may be able to grow in this harsh environment. Marcel deals with the bodies to make sure no one sees them and begins looking for the group. After about half an hour, they reconvene at the campfire site and prepare. Well, there's a problem here. There's only two horses and four of us. Well, as you can see, I am far too heavy and cumbersome for a horse to walk with me safely upon their back. I think I'll take the path behind and walk. I have never ridden a horse that small. I will walk as well. Alright, Formir. Looks like we get to ride. Wait. Uh, actually, we still have those chains, right? Hey, Brax. Uh, why don't you try going in your shell and we can pull you along like a wagon? And Kriv could ride on your back. You know, this might not be a bad idea, actually. I just hope when we arrive at our destination, I can get the sand out of my shell. The four misfit, would-be adventurers load up and set off to the north in hopes of reaching the border to Normus Bay. It does not take very long for the sun to start burning their skin. Taking the pieces of cloth that they were able to harvest from the tent, they each fashion a form of cover to protect themselves. In the daytime, they can now see the vast and dry desert biome they are in. Dead and dry sprigs line the side of the path every once in a while. Most likely seeds from trade caravans traveling in between Norman's Bay and Dragalia that were dropped during bandit raids or the rare wildlife encounter. Yeah, let's take the time to actually explain what they could run into. Obviously, dragons and creatures like them are out of the picture. You know, they were extinct. But you still have other dangerous creatures here that are more than capable of killing you. Uh, manticores, uh, ghosts of fallen caravan travelers, uh, even hyenas, you know. But also, much more problematic and pressing is the Drogalian army. 
just marching around. They are famed for their brutality and combat prowess. And I'm sure they're not going to be too kind to the group that just killed two of their slavers. I don't think they would appreciate that. However, two hours into the journey, the heat truly begins to set in and take its toll. The horses begin to sweat profusely from head to tail, and Marcel and Formir begin to smell gases that the horses are no longer able to hold due to the rapid rise in temperature. Kriv leaps to his feet suddenly and begins to walk next to the horses, rubbing the back of his legs. I appreciate the ride thus far, Abrex. However, your shell is quickly turning into a cooking surface. I am going to walk from here. You don't have to explain that to me. If we don't find shade soon, I fear that I may become a fully cooked individual. I shall offer a prayer to my lord Anubis and hope he grants us favor for safe passage through this rough terrain. You serve Anubis? Strange. I've never met a turtle that followed his teachings before. Well, he accepted me when no one else would in this world. I called to the gods every day. Lord Anubis was the only one that would answer my prayers. I myself has been a servant of Vulcan my entire life. My family has always served him, so it was just kind of natural for me to go in that role as well. Ormir, who do you pray to each night? That is something I would rather keep to myself for now. I mean no offense, but we have just met, and I'm not a cleric or paladin to go around and announce my deity for those to hear. Understood. I am a warrior of Ymir, the Frost Giant King. Is it not believed in the old tales that Goliaths are direct descendants of Ymir? I am surprised you have heard that. No. Ymir's bloodline was wiped away by Odin a very long time ago. Odin allowed Ymir to give life to a new being. And so were born the giants that you have heard about in legend. Frost, fire, storm, stone, cloud, hill. All of those giants were birthed through the frozen touch of Ymir. Those are the true ancestors of the Goliaths. There is no direct line back to Ymir by blood for us. Well, on the bright side, at least it makes for a good story. As it does. You say you are a follower of Vulcan. I have heard of the name in my traveling, but I have yet to have anyone tell me of him. Well, I can I can try to give you an explanation as to who he is, I guess. Well, if you find your mental faculties lacking, I can help you remember some things. I have studied the Pantheons for a while now in my travels, and I'm willing to lend you my mind as well as my aid. Alright, pretty much. Vulcan was abandoned at birth by his mother. Actually, she kind of threw him off a mountainside because he was kind of ugly and a little deformed. It's kind of sad, really. But he was taken in by Olympus after they discovered how talented he was as a blacksmith. An interesting fact is that Vulcan forged the lightning bolts that Zeus used to kill the Titans. And afterwards, Vulcan was given the hand of Aphrodite in marriage. That was a truly tragic tale. He loved Aphrodite, just as everyone else did. But Aphrodite did not feel the same for him. 
countless nights of being stood up over a hot meal that he personally prepared over the fires of his forge. Tends to be a heartbreaking tale to know everything that Vulcan went through in his life. Yeah, but he hasn't let him affect him too much. He treats his devout worshippers like sons and daughters, seeing as he hasn't been able to have any of his own. He sounds if he would take his position very seriously. Definitely worth respecting. Well, the same can be said of Anubis. He's feared among men and often mislabeled as a god of death. But he's not. He's the god of the dead. Yes, there is a difference. He accompanies souls to the judgment place in the Eastern Pantheon, comforting those who have been faithful within their belief. Honestly, he's a very kind and honorable individual. I'm sure that if we ever get to meet him, well, you'll all be pleasantly surprised by how he reacts to us. Let us continue on. We're getting low on food and water. We'll have to ration accordingly. Let's go. They continued their journey for three more days. By this time, they had run out of both food and water. On the third day, the wind begins blowing like that of a maelstrom, kicking up dust and sand all around them, making visibility nearly impossible. The horse that Marcel is riding suddenly drops, unable to continue. Not too long afterward, Formir's horse does the same. In the middle of a sandstorm, no transportation other than their own two feet, they continue pushing through, trying to reach the safety of Norman's Bay. Eventually, the storm becomes too much for them to continue, so they group and hunker down as best they can, trying to shield their faces from the sand. I have been in the desert before, yet I have never seen storms this severe. Marcel, if needed, you can rest behind me. I should be large enough to block most of the stinging rocks from your path. There's no need for that. Move aside. I'll raise the earth and give us some time. Bormir closes his eyes and pushes his hands into the sand. Just in front of him, a small wall of compact sand about five feet wide and two feet tall rises. He does this twice more to give them as much cover as possible. This will only give us about an hour. I'm too weak to keep it up any longer. It is enough for now, Formir. Thank you. Hey, Brax, are you digging? Yes, if I can dig us far enough down within the hour you've required us. I can use the pieces of the tent we have left to shield us from the storm. Putting them over us will keep us from getting damaged. Kriv, move. Yes? I will need your large hands. Scoop out the sand. Help me dig. We need to hurry. You know, I never thought about digging down during a sandstorm. I mean, it makes sense that it should work at least. Abrax and Kriv spend the next hour hurriedly digging a hole large enough for the four of them to climb into. Formir focuses all of his energy and attention in an attempt to keep them shielded for as long as possible, while Marcel stands in front of Kriv and Abrax with a portion of the cloth to shield them further. They are able to dig it out just as Formir's wall begins to fail. Marcel watches as Formir collapses from exhaustion. He grabs hold of him and pulls him into the hole with the rest as they cover up as best they can from the storm. You know, you realize that if they don't make it, the likelihood of them digging their own graves is a real possibility. They survived the night. Really? Wow. I didn't think that was going to work. 
Seems as if Abrax knows what he's doing. Maybe. As the sun rises, the storm has subsided completely. The landscape completely changed by the wind and sand. There is no sign of our adventurers. After a few moments, there's movement beneath the sand. A hand emerges. Shortly after, Kriv lifts himself from the hole, tossing sand to either side of him. Just below him follow the rest, weak, dehydrated, and starving. We must keep moving. Even if it kills us, we cannot stop. I feel we are getting close. <sighs> Lord Anubis, please hear my plea. We are in dire circumstances. We have no food, no water. Our strength is waning. Oh, great judge. Give us the guidance to safety and nourishment that we require. I place my trust in your fair scales, and I pray our souls will not be found wanting. Do you think he heard you? I can only hope so. In the meantime, Kriv is right. We must keep moving. If we sit here, we'll definitely starve. We must keep moving. They set out once more heading north in hopes of reaching the border. Sand upon sand is all they see, with no sign of any life for miles. The wind blows slightly, giving what would be a cooling breeze if it were not so hot. The sweat eventually stops, as their bodies have used the entirety of their hydration to stay cool. After two hours of walking, they come upon a small grove of dead trees just off the path. This can't be all there is. There has to be something out here that can help us survive. I refuse to die this way. No one's dying just yet, Kriv. Fix your eyes on the horizon, and our destination is just on the other side. I'm sure of it. I don't know if there's any energy or not, but I can try to create a little water. It may buy us a few hours. Formir drops to his knees and cries out. Just in front of him, a small pool of water forms. Enough for a few sips to each man. I'm sorry. I tried to make more. No, you're perfectly well. You made enough, and this hell have to be enough. Lord Anubis had to have heard my prayer. He will have something waiting for us. Surely he wouldn't abandon us. If he's as carrying his Vulcan, he will. I hope he is. Surround me in your snowy fortress, that I may be cooled to the core. Melt away this heat with bitter cold, and restore my strength, that I may be able to help my companions. You may send your icy gale to cool our bodies and our spirits, that we may continue to Normus Fay, where your blood was shed and my ancestors were raised. <coughs> if you three don't mind, if uh, Vormir makes more water in the future, could I have a sip before you take yours? <coughs> that last sip was more sand than water, I'm afraid. <coughs> I'm sorry, Abrex. Here. Marcel takes his hand down into the small crater that was filled with water and lifts up the sand. 
He then takes a part of the cloth from the tent that was salvaged and places it inside. Just twist the cloth around the sand and squeeze it. Maybe only a few drops, but it's better than nothing. You have my thanks. You know, there's no better team building exercise than being so close to death, really. I mean, it just really bonds people together. But luckily enough for them, though, that little bit of water that Formir was able to muster up gave them enough strength for just enough time that they needed to survive. Three more hours pass as they walk endlessly. Crib eventually passes out. No surprise there. Goliaths aren't known for their, you know, heat resilience. Abrak scoops him up and carries him on his shoulders. Soon afterwards, something comes into view on the horizon. Maybe it's just a mirage. I mean, I've heard those are pretty common in the desert. Trees! Green trees! Means water! I see it too! We gotta get there! Lord Anubis heard me. He has answered my prayer. Kriv! Kriv, wake up! We are saved! Abrax carries Kriv into the oasis and lays him next to the water. Marcel and Formir rush in and jump into the cool liquid and begin slurping loudly, trying to quench their thirst. Abrax begins cupping the water and pouring it into Kriv's mouth. Kriv wakes up and crawls into the water and submerges his head. For now, they are safe. Are they though? You realize that you're going to find wildlife at an oasis more likely than just roaming around, right? Because that's where water is. And usually, wildlife in the desert are venomous. Look, if they were able to escape their slavers, cross a desert while dragging a turtle, survive a sandstorm, and then make their way to this oasis just to die to a scorpion, they deserve it. Well, dang. Looks like someone woke up on the wrong side of the sandstorm. <laughs> Anywho, seriously, an oasis at this point in the journey is truly a blessing. But there are dangers that come with it. Not just the wildlife but anyone else that may be traveling through the desert may decide to stop there as well for water. While the group has their fun in the water, the trees begin to sway in the wind. Sand is thrown into the air and begins swirling around them as if they were in the eye of a hurricane. Suddenly, a large figure steps inside. It stands around 16 feet tall and wears golden armor. In its right hand is a spear, and in its left, a set of scales. I see that you have found my oasis. Lord Anubis? Yes. I heard your prayer. I used the sandstorm to divert your path slightly and led you here. This is unbelievable. I've never met a god face to face. It is becoming more and more common these days. You have not been in Normus Bay for some time, right? Correct. Yes. You must be warned of the changes coming. Each pantheon has their seers, and all are seeing the same thing. I cannot tell you what is coming, but I can give you fair warning. Heed my words. Keep your eyes open and pay close attention to the happenings around you. There will be an awakening soon that will decide the fate of both Jormundar and the gods. You will play a vital role in its outcome. There are new companions to meet, and many enemies to face. Prepare and harden yourselves 
for the coming fight. Know that the gods will be watching over you as often as we can. We are remaining in our regions for now, but I feel that will change in the future. We will be heeding these words as well. If we are unable to answer you quickly, please rest assured that we have heard you and that we are trying as well. In the meantime, take this blessing. Anubis raises his hands as a small meal for each person appears on a pile of palm leaves along with a jug of water and wine both. Remain here for a few days and regain your strength. Each day at dusk, these plates and jugs will refill. On the third day, they will be taken away for you to continue on your way. When you reach Normus Bay, journey to the town of Hagenthal. There is something there that will happen that you must stop. Good luck. Oh, and Abrax. Yes, my lord. Do not forget what you are here for. There will be those who are marked. I expect that you will send them to me. Of course, my lord. Whenever I find a marked soul, I will make sure they come to your court for judgment. And with that, Anubis walks back out into the sand. Afterwards, it subdues and becomes calm once more. The four surround the food and begin to dig in, pouring cups of both water and wine to quench their thirst. Well, more so the water to quench their thirst, the wine is just kind of for taste. You were right, Abrex. Anubis is truly kind, yet he maintains the ferociousness that comes with his name. I am glad to hear you say so. This is the best food I've ever had. Well, yeah, probably. Same for the wine as well. For the god of the dead, he surely knows how to cook. I'm not certain if he cooked it himself or if he had it made just so. But in a way, I am grateful regardless. At this point, it does not matter. We now have sustenance for three days. We must make the most out of it. The next three days go by quickly as they are spent eating, drinking, and sleeping in an attempt to regain strength. On the third day, the plates and jugs fill for the final time. When the sun sets, they sink into the sand, reclaimed by Anubis. I guess it is time for us to set out again in the morning. I was able to make some rudimentary water skins from some of the palm leaves. So we'll at least have a little water for our travels. That's a good thinking. And uh, why don't we take some of these palm leaves and make it kind of like a traveling tent. And we can use the limbs of the trees and have them cast shade over us. I like the idea. However, there are no more on the ground. How are we to get them from a 30 foot tall tree? While Kriv, Marcel, and Abrax are talking, Vormir climbs one of the trees and begins to pull palm leaves and toss them to the group below. In some moments, it's better to take action than to talk. Uh, fair enough. We'll be sure to take some of the spines as well. We can use them to fashion the limbs together. And if the wind starts blowing again, it'll keep them from turning into the sands. They spend the better part of an hour before sunset preparing the makeshift traveling tent. When the sun finally sets behind the dunes, 
all goes quiet. The only thing that can be heard throughout the darkness is the slight rustling of the palm leaves in the breeze. A stillness takes over as they begin to drift off to sleep. The faintest of whispers can be heard coming from within the oasis. Keeper of the sun, destroyer of darkness, I call to you to seek wisdom for these coming days. The warning from Anubis has shaken my mind, and I'm sure the news has slightly shaken yours. I pray for the safety of my new companions. They have put themselves in danger for me, and I wish to have the opportunity to repay them. I ask that you should give me strength to listen before I speak or act. Lend me your radiant flame that it should shine a light onto our dark path that we prepare for. I rejoice that knowing that one day I will join you and my brethren at the table of Valhalla, sharing our stories and tales of glory for the rest of time. Thank you, Saul, guardian of the sun. May the light shine brightly until the end of ages. You know, seeing Fulmir pray for the group is just very heartwarming. However, you know, that doesn't mean that it's not needed. As of now, they are still two days away from the border of Normus Fay. They've made it this far. Surely they can make it the rest of the way. The sun rises on a new day and awakens them one by one. Fulmir stands, having not slept that night, and walks to the edge of the oasis. Well, the true test begins now. We've been blessed by a god. If we are to fail, then that means we were doomed to fail from the start. We are stronger than that. Let us go and prove our strength to the gods. I agree. Let us become worthy of the blessings that we have received. We will. Anubis has believed in us so far, and he has entrusted us with the warning for all these coming events. He will not place his trust in us lightly, so he must see something, maybe a glimmer of hope within our group. Well, I'm glad someone does. Not to be a killjoy or anything, but I really don't want to die in the desert. Then let's get moving before, the, before it comes too hot. That's the spirit, guys. All for one, so on and so forth. I got five dollars if they're not going to make it out alive. I'll take that bet because it really wouldn't be much of a story if they didn't, now would it? Well, hurry up and tell us what happens. You know what happens already. So, I can't get excited and make a bet? For the love of... Fine. <sighs> the group prepares their shading tools for the journey by tying them around their waists, allowing the palm leaves to rest gently upon their heads. They make their way back to the path and walk for an hour. As the sun begins to truly heat up their surroundings, there is a noise that begins to rise from behind them. As they turn around, they see a covered wagon drawn by four horses. They step to the side of the path to keep from being hit as the wagon slows and stops just in front of them. Driving the wagon is a burly man with thick red hair down to his shoulders, with a beard as long as his arm draped across his lap. He stands in the driver's seat to get a view and smiles slightly before speaking. You boys need a ride. It's too hot out here for you to make it on your own, right, Elsa? From the back of the wagon, a red-headed woman sticks her head out with a smile, yet discerning look in her eyes. By the gods, yes. You four look as if you've had a rough few days. Can we interest you in a ride to the border? How do we know that we can trust you? 
Well, let me start by introducing myself. My name is Lee, and this is me wagon, used for trade between Midgar and Exilia. Elsa's my assistant. It's a lot easier to make a deal when there's a pretty girl in the room. <laughs> you got that right. Uh, can you take us all the way to the border? We can't take you through the border because of smuggling laws, but we can get you close enough that you can walk without too much strain on your bodies. Well, I believe we can trust these two, for the time being at least. Besides Formir, if worse comes to worse, there's still four of us and only two of them. Great! Climb aboard! Wine's in the keg closest to the driver's seat. Plenty to go around. The four climb into the wagon and sit down, each pouring themselves a cup of wine and relaxing for the rest of the journey. If you had tried walking the rest of the way, it would have taken you two more days to reach Normisfey. But with these horses, we should be at the border by late tomorrow morning, just before noon. Thank you so much for the ride. We've been walking back for nearly seven days now. How did you find yourselves in this position to begin with? We were taken by slavers. They were going to sell us an ox to whoever would give them coin. How did you manage to get away? We formed the plan and then killed them with our own weapons. If not for the efforts of these three, I would still be in chains being led through the desert. Yeah, it wasn't guaranteed that we would survive the fight either. But Kriv knows how to strategize a fight, and it worked beautifully. And if Lord Anubis hadn't led us to the oasis, we would probably be just bones being eaten by the sands and the wind. Anubis? I've heard of him in my days spent in the desert with caravans, but I never really got to know much of him. Just know while he is a god of the dead, he is a kind and honorable god. That is what matters in the end. He saved our lives and he judges the worthy. Why don't you tell him the story of the deal we made in the story Midgar, eh? It's a good one. The group sit back and listen earnestly to the story told by Elsa, with a periodic interruption from Lee. They laugh for the first time in a week. Then they begin to share stories of battles won, trades made, and loves lost. Eventually, the sun sets and the wagon cannot continue. They pull off the main path to a campsite frequented by tradesmen. They all get out and begin setting up the site for the six of them to sleep. Elsa begins cooking a large stew while Lee and the rest get the tents erected. After the tents are set up and the perimeter is set for the night, they all sit down to a hot meal by the fire. The stories continue with Lee telling one from his youth. Either way, me brother and I were running back to the house when all of a sudden this smell hits us like a hammer. I look over at him and I say, does it smell like something died to you too? He answered and I said, I swear it does. Just when he said that, up the road away was an old man walking across and dumps something out of a bowl and turns around to go back. I told my brother he was feeding the death smell, and he went to agree and tripped, causing him to roll down a hill and wind up face first in a fresh cow patty. <laughs> 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 
Oh, did your brother ever get that smell off of him? It took him a week to get all the turds out of his ears. We called him Patty for years. All the way up until the day he died. He was born out of a sad situation, but every time we called him Patty, he would just laugh as hard as the day it happened. I'm sorry about your brother. If you don't mind me asking, how did he die? He was a trader like myself. If anything, he's the reason I started doing it. We were on a trading trip together, further south into Dugalia. I had gotten a hold of something that didn't quite agree with me, and wound up sick as a dog. We were in exilia at the time, and he told me not to worry, that he would make two trips to Ox with the wagons so that we could get our goods sold and head home. He set out, but he never came back. Eight days after he left, I left for Ox as well to try and find him, but I came upon the wreckage of his cart. His body had been left for the vultures. I'm so sorry, Lee. Oh, do you know what killed him, or do you know who may have killed him? Orc raiders. They travel in between Arcs and Exilia, preying on trade wagons. I buried my brother as best I could outside of Arcs, and came back to Normus Bay. After a few years, I met Elsa over there, and she helped me put myself back together. Now we run it together, but... We never go any further than Exilia, just in case. I understand your pain. I've lost my family, too. If you don't mind me asking, how? We were at war in the north with another Goliath settlement. I was one of the leading officers. My father, the general, had tasked me with planning the attack. And so I did. But I failed to take all factors into account. The last I saw of my father, he was being run through with a blade as I ran for my life. I can't forgive myself for the display of cowardice. After the battle, I snuck into my home, gathered my belongings and left. I have not returned for six years. I too am... I am... I am too ashamed. Well, if you look at it in another light, Ymir has given you a second chance, Kriv. You may have the opportunity yet to prove yourself with us now, and may ease some of your past failures. I refuse to flee from any battle again, unless we are completely outmatched, and each of us can escape with our lives. Look, if you ever have any doubts in the future, don't hesitate to ask us. Talk to us. We can figure this out. It's getting awfully late. We'll need to get some rest if we're to make it to the border by noon. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Right there's my cue, boys. Rest up. We'll be in Normus Bay tomorrow. The group lay down under the stars for one more rest in Dragalia. Tomorrow, they will finally reach Normus Bay. Marcel, Abrax, and Crib sleep soundly through the night. Formir's rest, however, is thrown off halfway through. He stands and is seemingly wrapped in darkness. He begins to hear a voice speak to him. Formir. Formir. Who is this? Let's just say that I'm an acquaintance of someone you know. 
I've heard from the seers as to what's going to transpire over the next few cycles, and I just had to talk to you. I do not recognize your voice. Show yourself! Gladly. From the darkness steps a tall and slim figure dressed in green and gold attire. Upon his head is a helmet with what resembles goat horns stretching high above his head before turning back and coming down again. On his sides are a set of daggers, and there is a mischievous grin upon his face. Loki, at your service. What do you want? Oh, nothing much. Other than to tell you that I know the answers to the questions you have tucked away in that little head of yours. What questions? Like who your parents are. Your real parents, anyway. I know your role in what's coming for me. I know you'll ruin everything for me. So I decided I'd like to play a little game. And I'll visit you again real soon for the first round. <laughs> With that, Loki steps back into the shadows and vanishes along with the darkness. Vormir finds himself standing over Marcel, clutching a rock in his hand, ready to crush his skull. He quickly throws the rock away and sits back down on the other side of the campsite. He sits there for the rest of the night, racking his head as to what just happened and why. Either way, man, that's creepy. Like, I'm, Loki just shows up and messes with him at night by invading his meditation. I get that Loki is like the god of mischief, but like, that's just uncalled for. Luckily, the rest of the night goes by uneventful, and the sun soon rises on the group. Alright, wake up. Let's get this show on the road. Places to be and people to see, fellas. Get loaded in so we can move on out. The trade wagon makes its way north, as the landscape begins to become a little more green. Eventually, they come into view of the border checkpoint for the main road, and Lee pulls the wagon off the path and slows to a stop. Here is where we part ways. Thank you for the company. We've enjoyed it. No, no, thank you. We can't thank you enough for the food, the drink, and the ride. Just remember us next time you're in the area. We hope to see you all again real soon. The group climbs out of the wagon, taking water, wine, a loaf of bread, and a few rations for the journey. Lee and Elsa wave as they set off back onto the path. They are close now. They go back onto the path and walk up to the border crossing. The guards see them coming and wave them over. State your business, please. We're just trying to get back into Normansfay after freeing ourselves from slavers that abducted us. Oh, I thought they did something about that route south of Midgar. I'll put in a report to the guard there and see what they say back. Well, if there's any need for paperwork, as you can tell, we obviously have none on us. No need. We had had a report that a turtle and a goliath had gone missing about two weeks ago. They gave accurate enough descriptions that I know it's you two. Then if it's alright with you, we'll be on our way. If I may ask, where are you heading? Hagenful. We were told to go to Hagenfall. Oh, Hagenfall is about six days out from here. Be careful on the main road, still having a problem with the Red Hand in this region. When you stop for the night, do so in the trees. They'll be less likely to find you as they stick to the road more often than not. Thanks for the warning. We'll send word once we reach Hagenfall to see what the guard in Midgar said. Finally, they have made it to Normus Bay. Now, 
Instead of being surrounded by sand, they are surrounded by green grass and trees. Wildlife can be heard in the distance moving throughout the forest floor. The wind is blowing through the treetops, rustling branches together and carrying the smell of pine throughout the land. The landscape quickly becomes uneven. Unlike Dragalia, Normus Bay is covered in hills that flow throughout the country. After a few hours of walking, they stop in the trees at a nearby river to refill their water skins. Oh, I promise I'll never take the color green for granted again. I'm inclined to agree with you, Marcel. I would prefer a snowy background, but this is much better than the harsh sands we left behind. Oh, I feel at home once again. Surrounded by beautiful nature and a loving sun shining upon me. Thank you all for helping me get back. Well, while we all did suffer in the deserts with you all, there was a certain serenity and beauty to it. Well, if you don't count the dangerous beasts, but most of that beauty was found in the evenings or the night. Well, we're still about six and a half days from Hagenfall. Let's get these skins filled and get moving again. We've only got a few hours of sunlight left. They all approach the river and kneel to fill their water skins. The water flows strong and cold here. The number of rocks within cause a tremendous noise from the river to echo throughout the trees surrounding them. As they stand, they notice that they are being watched by two sets of eyes. As they start to back away slightly, two black bears rush at them through the shallow part of the river. We can't outrun them. All we can do is fight. Split up, two by two. Try not to get flanked. Former, with me. Abrax rushes forward into the shallow water to meet one of the bears head-on with Formir just behind him. As Abrax reaches the bear, he swings wildly with his claws, but they do nothing to the bear. The bear then retaliates by swiping and biting. Abrax falls unconscious from his wounds in the water. Seriously? That's all it took for him to go down? I thought these people were supposed to be great heroes. That's just disappointing. Abrax! I'll try to handle this one. You two worry about the one downstream. Kriv turns to the south as the other bear is making its way to them. He inhales and lets out a terrifying battle cry while boasting his size in hopes of scaring the bear away. The bear, seeing that Kriv is much bigger than itself, turns around and disappears into the trees. Alright, at this point I know you are making this stuff up. By all means, take this text and read from it. Give it here. Let's see. The bear saw that Crib was much larger than itself and became intimidated and ran back into the tree. Okay, okay. You know what? This bear needs to grow a pair. Because as of now, the other one is locked in a 3v1 fight to the death. Marcel rushes towards the bear and sinks his sword into its flesh, turning a section of the river red with blood. Formir runs over to Abrax and casts a healing spell that stabilizes him allowing him to return to the fight with some strength. Kriv then runs in and takes a swing at the bear, this time going into the chest cavity, causing the bear to stumble slightly. Seeing this, Abrax runs and jumps onto the bear, sinking his claws into the open wounds. The bear lies there struggling for a brief moment before it takes its final breath. That was exhilarating. Speak for yourself. I almost died. But did you die? 
I did not. Well, we need to keep moving. This is mating season for this bear. And this will may not be the last we see of a mate here. They grab the water skins and leave quickly, hoping that this is the only bear they run into. Abrax collapses after an hour from his wounds. Kriv grabs him and carries him on his shoulders as they begin to pick up their pace. I do not have the healing power needed for these wounds. Hagenfall is too far. He will not survive the journey. Maybe there's something between here and there. I'll run ahead and see. Marcel runs ahead about 1,000 feet. There, he sees the outline of a small village. I see a village about 30 minutes out. And that is where we are fated to be. Kriv begins to run as fast as he can with a 450-pound turtle on his shoulders. It's not that fast, but, you know, it's better than walking. After about 20 minutes, they reach the outskirts of the village. Smoke is rising from various houses and huts as supper is being cooked. Children play in the street as farmers bring in their tools. The party enters the village and goes to the center. There, they see an older woman talking to multiple people about the harvest and crops for the season. As they approach, she stops and begins speaking to them. Aren't y'all boys lost? No, ma'am. We're on our way to Hagenfall, and our friend here was mauled by a bear a few hours ago. We don't have any healing supplies. Could we stay within the village tonight? Goodness. Everyone, we'll finish this discussion later. You boys follow me. They follow the elderly woman back into a large house. Once inside, she tells them to lay Abrax in front of the fire as she begins to make a wound dressing in a mortar and pestle. How long has he been like this? For at least two hours. I can't guarantee you that this will work, but oh, it's better than nothing. Please help yourselves to supper. I made plenty for all of us. It will give pl time for this pace to do its work. The group sits on the floor around Abrax, offering prayers to various deities. After praying, they each grab a bowl of stew from the cauldron over the fire and eat. They lie down that night, and eventually, when they cannot fight it anymore, drift off to sleep, not knowing if Abrax will be alive when they awake. He's not going to die this early into the story, is he? That question will have to be answered at another time.